Romans chapter 15, verse 1. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant to you, grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles and I will sing to your name. Again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. Again, Isaiah says, there shall come the root. There shall come the root of Jesse and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles in him shall the Gentiles hope. Now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Father, we do thank you for your word. Lord, we ask that you would guide us now as we study these verses. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. So one of my favorite times when I go in a plane and I'm flying and I'm on a long trip is that point when you can sense that things are changing. Whether it's the stewardesses, I mean, flight attendants. I have a couple that they call flight attendants. You can tell that they start sort of making preparations. You can hear some mechanical noises sort of take effect. Maybe your ears start kind of getting congested because you, you can feel the, the shift in elevation that you're going down. I love that time because I know that it's like, whether it's an hour flight or a 12-hour flight, that's always the best time because you're like, it's almost over. We're almost we're at, to the destination, whether it's home or the place you're traveling to. Excitement starts to build. And I feel that in Romans chapter 15, Paul is starting to make his, his descent, that he's about to end the book. We have one more chapter to go. Um, in chapter 16, a lot of it, he's just sort of dropping a lot of names, sort of uh, mentioning these, these people that he has relationship with, that, the, that the, the believers in Rome would have mutual connections with. And so it's a good time to sort of review where we've come from and where he's going. So we know that Paul doesn't know the people in Rome. He has relationships, but, but he's never actually been to that church. He wasn't one of the founding pastors. None of the apostles were. He'd, he'd heard great things about this church that they'd been living by faith. Uh, ultimately, we, we know that he wanted to go there as sort of a, a, a staging uh, base so that he could get on to Spain. It was uh, on the, the center of the world, Rome. All the roads led to Rome. And he knew that from there, he could set up a base camp to, to get on 
to, to Spain, to the outermost part of the world. He wanted to introduce himself. So in the first three chapters, he explains his, well, the first 11 chapters, very doctrinal. The first three, he starts with the sinful nature of, of humanity, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. By chapter four, he shows that it's always been by faith that a person comes to salvation. He points to Abraham that it wasn't by works that Abraham was declared righteous, but it was through his faith that God declared him justified. And so then in chapter five, this great chapter on justification, he says that since now you're justified through faith, this is the position you have with God live in this position. But in chapter six and seven, he begins to address issues that believers have. Once we come to to faith in Christ, we have our old habits and our old ways and our old beliefs that often steer us off track. And so he 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 encourages them, don't get off track, but uh, don't stumble in your flesh, whether it's in, uh, in a sinful nature or sinful nature through religion to the Jewish falling back on the law. And in chapter eight, he gives hope that this is this is the key to the Christian living is dependency on the, the spirit. And he'll guide you and equip you and empower you. He'll help you in your prayers. And in chapters nine through 11, it, these chapters seem confusing. A lot of people have said, oh, they're sort of like outside of Romans or a parenthetical thought. But really, it's a main issue that Paul knows uh, that's in the church at Rome, that the Jews were the flourishing church initially, that it was Jewish believers who established the church in Rome. But as uh, Claudius was getting frustrated with the, 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 the contention amongst the, the Jews for a variety of reasons, he just kicks all Jews, believing Jews and non-believing Jews out of out of Rome. And during that window, the the believing Gentiles began to flourish and the church became very top heavy in believers who were Gentiles. They began to to believe that God was done with the Jews. And and now his plan and his promises to Jerusalem or to not Jerusalem to Israel were now transferred to the Gentiles. But Claudius was eventually poisoned. Nero came to power. The Jews came back as a minority. And there's this great tension between them and so paul sort of straightening out the plan of god that he's not done with israel we come to chapter 12 and he 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 comes to the application now that i've laid out all this doctrine all of this truth here's why it matters he says because of all this give your lives to god offer your lives as a sacrifice to him and he begins to show how it works itself out in in your relationships with one another Uh, with the world around you, the the government in chapter 13, how are Christians supposed to live? Then in chapter 14, in the last few weeks, we've looked at these issues of of within the church that was on this this precipice of splitting into two churches where there'd be a Jewish church and a Gentile church over issues that weren't really critical. They were preferences. They were where they came from. The Jews didn't care about the food or the days. And the Jews had an issue with meat and and how the festivals were celebrated. And Paul's trying to bring unity. And and how do we handle our our convictions when we're not in alignment with one another? And so he's he's gone over this for a while. And now we come to chapter 15, verse 1, as he sort of wraps up this teaching. He says, now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses 
of those without strength and not just please ourselves. So he starts out with this principle. We see that Paul included himself with the strong. So in the context, Paul being a Pharisee, Paul being a Jew, when it came to the eating of meat that had been sacrificed for idols, he's like, I don't really care. Those idols are worthless. They mean nothing. There's only one true God. God created all. All's, all's clean. I have no problem eating this. But then for his Jewish brother that, that, that really feels like he's defiled if he eats this meat or doesn't celebrate the day, Paul says, you know what? I'll give my freedom up for the sake of their benefit. In modern day Christianity, what I've noticed with issues that are sort of gray, where there's a weak and a strong, it doesn't seem to matter what side you're on. You feel that you're the stronger one. Because if you've reached this theological conclusion, I mean, we're all pretty much perfect, right? Like my interpretation of scripture is the right one. So if somebody else doesn't reach that same conclusion that I've reached, they've got to be the weaker one. And so it's a beautiful thing that if there's variety over these gray areas, that if everybody sort of has the premise of like, you know what? No, it's not about me. I want to, to serve the other one. I want to help the other one with their conscience. So if I have freedom in an area, then I will basically neglect that freedom for the sake of, of their conscience. Or if I've placed a bunch of rules on myself that I have strong convictions that aren't necessarily laid out from scripture, but God through his scripture has given me these convictions, I'm not going to project those convictions on the other person. He goes on to say, and he says, verse two, each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. He says, listen, you count others higher than you count yourself. It's we need to live with the motive that we want to do what's good for our neighbor. We want to please them. We want to do it for their edification. This gets difficult, though. When I was, uh, before I was a pastor and I was a Christian going to church, I, I didn't see all of the convictions of everybody else. I just sort of came to church. I, I went to church. I go to Bible study. I do my thing. If you're in a Bible study, you talk about what the Bible says. You'd see that some people thought one thing. Some people thought the other. No big deal. You go on your own way. You formalize your thoughts, your convictions. I would go to church. It was more about house church going, oh, I really like this church. I really like the sermon, blah, blah. But I didn't really see anything. But now, as a pastor, like over the years, you guys have some opinions on stuff. I, I encourage opinions on things. I, I want you to read the Bible and, and to develop convictions. And I get talks all the time. I get emails. I get phone calls. I get various things of, of people who have reached deep-seated convictions over certain issues, which I've encouraged them to develop convictions. But there are people in church, in our church, who have deep, deep convictions on one issue, but then those people are split. Some landed on this side, some landed on this side. And the issue then is, in my, in my personality, when I read stuff like this, and it says, each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, for his edification, how, how, how do we balance things? Because if Larry has this thing that he really likes, and I say, well, I really want to make Larry happy. I, want, I care about Larry's edification, I, his happiness. Larry says, I feel really strongly about whatever it is. 
I want to encourage Larry that issue, but then I say, okay, that sounds really good. So I'm going to I'm going to kind of make that a policy in the church. We're going to, we're going to ride, we're going to ride that pony and we're going to go. Then I come over here and I see Dave because Dave's like the, you know, like the first guy I feel okay making fun of. I really should have landed on you. But then Dave says, well, I really, I really care about this issue. And I'm like, well, that's really good. I'm glad you've established convictions, but that conviction is different than Larry. So now I want to make you happy. <laughs> and so then we're going to ride this. And now Larry's like, got her, but I thought, and so this has been a, a, a different, difficult, like how, if we want to please his neighbor, it's for his good, for his edification that they would grow. Sometimes there's different convictions. How, how do we strike this balance? Because I found it's difficult if we, if our aim is to, to seek to make other people happy. Now, now in this, there are sometimes people that they have the gift of unhappiness. That like no matter no matter what you do, they're never going to be happy. And so, how do you is the Bible telling us to continue to bend and to, to give in certain areas to stand with no convictions? And and I don't think it's that's what it's saying. I found some help over in Galatians. If you would turn to me with me over um, the, the next couple of books here, and you'll come to Galatians chapter one, verse ten. And I feel that verse ten gives us some some help in, in trying to navigate what we as Christians want to live for other people. We want to help other people. Uh, in the context of this passage, I believe that he's addressing within the church. Now, Paul here in, in Galatians chapter one, verse 10, he says, for am I now seeking the favor of men or God? Am I striving to please men? For if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a good bond servant of Christ. You can go back to Romans. I think this is really, Paul kind of says, hey, am I living my life to try to make, just to try to make people happy or am I living to make God happy? He says, if I, if I live to make man happy, then I'm really, I no longer become a slave of Christ. I become a slave of the different personalities that I'm trying to represent. And, and that can be a difficult position to be in because you can't make anybody happy all of the time. And if you make one person happy, then it makes the other person unhappy. So in this, what I think he's saying, like I don't think he's, he's, he's saying that you don't stand with conviction, but if you have convictions and you recognize that a person's convictions are different than yours, that there's this, there's this attitude within you that, that you concede, or not even concede, that's probably a bad word. See, I'm such a, I could have been a great attorney, I think, that I, I think so, like this is an argument. But that you say, well, you know what, I feel this way, but I don't have to project on them. I can respect that, that they don't see things the way I do. Because ultimately, as we've already seen in Romans 14, they're doing their thing. They have their conviction because they're trying to please God. I have my conviction because I'm trying to please God. So let's work together. There's no sin. There's no issue. This is a different of, of difference of opinion. And then he goes on to say in verse 3, for even Christ did not please himself. For as it is written... The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And I love this. Like the, the example he goes to is to Christ. He said, if we're strong, let's bear the weaknesses of others. If you're strong, don't live for yourself. Live for the other person. Help them. Well, well why should we do this, Paul? And he says, well, even Christ didn't live to please himself. If there was... Any person in humanity that could, 
rightfully lived to please himself, it would be the creator. That Christ could come as God and basically say, all of you are to worship me. All of you are to, to just bow down. There's a verse, um, Mark 10.45. It's, I don't even like saying Mark 10.45 because when I was a, a new believer, I remember that I was an instructor because that's, I was wearing a uniform, a UDT SEAL instructor in the church. They were making this video. I've come a long way. I'm better with cameras. I think it's because Anne has been taking pictures of me for the last 12 years. And so finally now I'm a little desensitized to the cameras. But at this point, I think we were just married. Like it was right around when we were just married. And they said, hey, Gunnar, we're making this video about being servants. And can you just, we have this professional video camera guy. And it was at the convention center downtown San Diego. Can you come in, in uniform and just quote Mark 1045? I'm like, I'll give it a shot. I'm willing to do whatever. And so I showed up in this cameraman with his camera, real nice. He's like, okay, all I want you to say is to quote the verse and to say like that you believe in serving sort of thing. We must have taken 500 takes because I could not, I seized. And so now I read this verse and it like, it just kind of brings up stuff in me. But, but what did Jesus say when he was there? He said, Mark 10, 45, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. I've, I've got it after all these years. But, but Christ, who is Lord, came. He served. I, I think of the night in which he was betrayed, his very last example of leadership. They're arguing about the kingdom of God. And, and how does he start? He gets down. And he washes their feet, something that was reserved for the lowest of all slaves. And he says, I'm washing your feet. This is the example I'm leaving you. And so we look to Christ. He says, Christ did not live to please, for not even Christ, for even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And he says, you know what? The scripture, he quotes Psalm 69 a messianic psalm, and he says that the Messiah would basically say that, that he would allow the sins of the world to fall on himself. And that's the kind of servant that he was. Another great passage, if you turn with me over to Philippians chapter 2. And in Philippians chapter 2, it's this great passage. The passage that people often want to know about because they're, they're wondering where that verse is. That says that one day every knee will bow and every mouth will confess that Jesus is Lord. And it's found in Philippians chapter 2, but we often miss the context of what this whole passage was about. If you haven't marked in your Bible, I'd encourage you to, to, to note Ephesians 2, 5. And, and look what Paul says. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord 
to the glory of the Father. And this is a beautiful passage. And the point to the church there in Philippi was we're supposed to have this attitude of Christ. And his attitude was humility, that he humbled himself. Even though he was God, he came to earth. He lived life without sin as an example. And he took on the world's sin, dying on the cross, naked, beaten, and, and, and abused. And this example of Christ is, you can turn back to Romans. It's one of these things that there's this phrase that I, I think is even in the secular business world today is servant leadership. And this idea of servant leadership, even from the secular model, they often will point to Christ. Even if they reject him as God, they still recognize that, man, this guy, like even from a humanistic perspective, he changed the world. And look at his example. It was totally through serving. And this is our leader. This is our God. And this is how he led us. And so we're instructed to come as servants because Christ did. And then look at verse four. He says, for whatever was written in earlier days, written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. From this point throughout this section, we see a reference to it is written the scriptures or again kind of referring to the scriptures eight times. Paul suddenly injects the importance of the Bible throughout his text. And I keep asking, like, why did he do this? But notice how in his writing in verse three, what does he say? He's he's encouraging the believers to follow Christ's example. And as he does this, almost without thinking, I believe, he quotes from scripture to, to validate what he just said. And so he start, he, it's almost like he has the scriptures on his mind. And so he starts talking about the Bible. Like what we have, and he says, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. That the Bible exists for our instruction. And, and we evangelical Christians, when we consider the scriptures, we're kind of considered oddballs to the rest of the world. Uh, I forget if it was, it was a day when I was like really busy. Anna came up to me and, and told me, he's like, hey, do you see what your friend was writing? And I'm like, no, I didn't. See, I didn't. He's not a believer. He's, he's, a, he's an attorney. But I mean, there are attorneys who are believers, just for the record. He's an attorney. He's not Christian, but he, he puts this post about the Bible and he's making like a very biblical sort of observation about our society from a biblical stance and now he's like finds himself under attack and Anna's like hey it's a great opportunity for you to like go in there i'm like i don't have time for this but so i went and read it the guys you know i like the guy he also i did that one victorian era wedding that he was my lead for doing that they needed a pastor that wasn't afraid of guns and so i'm like i'll go see if i can support him somehow and so i start reading this thread and they're observing our culture and how christians sort of miss interpret what the bible says over a certain subject i'm like he's right and so i go through and i start from a very like teaching the bible i lay out a couple make a couple points and then by the end somebody who even agreed with him he's like you know i don't even care what the bible says but i think you're right and the issue is is most of the world looks at this as like some just some old book that's not relevant of, of no value like you're outdated and old-fashioned if you think that this has any influence in your lives today. And I would, well, I'm pretty sure that if you're in church here today, 
that we value this Bible because we believe that it's the word of God that has given instruction to us. And that's what Paul says. It was written for our instruction. It reminds me of 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. If you'll turn there with me, this great passage. Uh, Timothy is a book that we're going to look at uh, starting in January. I love 2 Timothy because I love Paul. Paul already is a very intense guy. He's focused, driven. His, his eyes are on Christ. And everything increases in 2 Timothy. I believe 2 Timothy is sort of Paul's last will and testament. He's under arrest again. This time it's different. He finds himself in a pit and he's going to face his execution. It's the last letter he writes Timothy. He's, he's cold. He's begging him, hey, bring me a jacket. I need help. And one of the last things he says to Timothy is in chapter 3, verse 16. He says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And you can turn back to Romans. When I stumbled across this fourth verse, it was, I just liked it. I mean, it's beautiful. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. I don't know if you've ever encountered this scripture where you feel like God's just given you sort of like a word of hope or encouragement. I know that before I was a believer, I was drawn to the Bible. I would be in a hotel room, inebriated, reaching for that Gideon's Bible, knowing that like kind of the answers were in there. I don't know that I ever found him flipping through the Bible there, or maybe something influenced me there that led on later. But there's something about the scriptures that have power. I'll never forget. It was in this, I think it was the summer of 2003. I found myself, I was out at Pine Valley Christian camp at a, at a men's conference. I wasn't there for the whole thing. I went out for one day to catch part of it, but I was at a very low point in my life. I was a, I was a, I was a Christian. I, I was in Bible college, but I don't know that I'd fully recognized that I was heading into like the pastoral ministry. I, I wanted, I was in Bible college because I wanted to study the Bible. I didn't know where it would lead. But in that season of my life, it was, as a Christian, I think it was one of the lowest places that I'd ever been. We, we'd lost our first child through miscarriage. In March, it was March 23rd that my friend Tom Adams was killed, one of the first deaths in, in the Iraq war on, in June 25th of that same year. My, my very good friend, Tom Ratzer, Ratzer was killed in Afghanistan, and, and I was discouraged. I, I was depressed. I remember as a Christian feeling like, well, Christians aren't supposed to get depressed, but I'm depressed. I don't even know how to get out of it. I don't want to be here. I don't know how to get out of here. And certainly I don't believe that today. Christians get depressed like anybody else. Paul describes his depression and that God sent him uh, fellow believers to encourage him. And it wasn't anything that was said at that conference. It wasn't um, that I heard worship. It actually happened when I wandered out into the woods by myself with just my Bible. And I remember sitting on a rock and sort of doing the whole like, oh, something's got to be in here. Like something has got to be in here. You guys been there? Amen. Okay, good. <laughs> There's... 
And I stumbled across 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And it was like I read it and I just started crying. It's the chapter that's almost read at every funeral. And I read it again. And I read it again and I read it again. I just that one chapter over and over and over again. And it was like God was speaking to me. And God was encouraging me and God was giving me hope. And I remember leaving there kind of going, this is, I think I'm supposed to preach this chapter. But I wasn't a preacher and I didn't even know what the protocol was. I remember that with the next following couple of weeks, I went to the senior pastor of that church I was at. I said, I think I'm supposed to preach a sermon. I don't know what the protocol is of this, but I, this happened. and I think I'm supposed to preach it. And he's like, I'll schedule you. And so he scheduled me. That was the first sermon I ever preached. And I believe it was from that, from there that God kind of led me into the pastoral ministry or that I began to recognize it. But there was nothing sweeter than being able to open up the word of God and to know that it's alive and that it ministers to us. Look what he says here. Verse four, for whatever was written in earlier times for us, this is from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible, so that. It was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. It leads to hope. The more I study the Bible, the the, the more I, I realize how little I know about the Bible. But it's amazing how God works in, in what little that we know. And I see that through this whole like the perseverance, like don't give up reading the scriptures. Even if you just read one verse a day, you're in there, just you'll be amazed what God will do in your life through reading of the word. And I love that it leads to hope. Um, before the first service started, Debbie Johnson came up to me and she said, hey, Gunner, can you? It's in my pocket. Don't let me put this through the wash. You know, this is like, this is, the, oh, I'm afraid it's going to go. She said, hey, can we buy a hundred of these? Um, and I see the pamphlet. I didn't even, I'm like, we can buy a hundred of anything this size because what are they, about five cents each? I think that we can... I feel comfortable that we could get a hundred of these. I'm like, well, what is it? And it's like a read the Bible in a year. And she's like, I do this every year. I read through the Bible a year. I'm like, yeah, I've started a bunch of times. Uh, the one time I read the Bible in a year, it took me about three and a half years to complete, but I did it. And it was actually something like this because there's little boxes. It's less the, dependent on the date. She's like, well, I'm going to do it again in a year. I'm going to read the Bible every year, like for the rest of my life. I'm like, yeah, I stopped saying that because I get like, I've read it a couple times. I've read portions of it. Um, because I get discouraged once you, once you hit like Leviticus and it's like you miss a day, then you miss two days. You're like, I need to get back on there. Then you have like 70 chapters to get caught up with where you're supposed to be. And, um, but she said, well, can we buy some of these? Cause maybe there's others that want to do this. And I'm like, yeah, anything I'll encourage whatever sort of thing that we could be in the Bible, because as we as a body are in the Bible and we work at it, work at reading, will find encouragement through the scriptures and ultimately it leads to hope. And we live in a world that's so absent of hope, <coughs> totally absent of hope. We think it's in politics. And so then we, we vote for one guy that makes all of these promises and then that guy's elected and none of the promises come through. And it's like, well, let's fire him and hire this other guy on the other team and then he'll fix everything. And then we do four or eight years with that guy and then we're in the same spot. But if you watch the elections, like, all of the promises are almost always the same and they're always trying to give hope. But the only hope to be found is from the God of hope. 
And so may we turn our eyes to the scriptures and find our hope there. And in verse 5, he says, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement, he repeats what he just said, grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. Now notice what he says. He says, hey, may the God who gives these things give to you something. What he wants to give is that you have the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. I'd use that illustration of the tuner the last couple of weeks. I'm not going to do it again. I realize that I'm bad with musical illustrations, but I'm going to give you one more. This summer, we went and we saw Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Did I get it right? I feel like I've seen that play like 6,000 times. It's Anna's favorite play. I've probably seen it four times. I don't know exactly how many. But so we went in and we saw it at San Diego Christian College. And where our seats were, they had the band or the orchestra sort of laid out differently. And, and it kind of went along the side. And the girl, the conductor lady who has the thing where she looks like she broke off somebody's antenna and just started swinging around, she's going. And it's like, oh, I know that girl. That's the sister of so-and-so from this family that we know. And so she was poised in a position that that she took all of my attention. Like, I was like, what is she doing? Like, I'm seeing all of this stuff, and she's doing this stuff. And I'm like, what would happen if I just went and, I like, just tackled her and pulled her out? Would they keep going and be fine? How would they respond? I'm like, that would probably be distracting. So, like, me getting arrested would probably ruin the experiment. But, I, but like, what is she doing? And so then I made some comment on Facebook around thinking, conductors what do they really do like like it's a joke like all of these people play and all of these musical people like my brother-in-law was one he is like a very like he's a professional musician plays at high levels and you would have thought that i blasphemed (laughs) i've been so corrected on so many different apparently that person is super critical because they control the volume of very instruments when they come in, when they go out, the timing to the ever, like it's a very important, the people who are musical are nodding. I'm just saying something. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but the issue that Paul is saying and why I bring this up is Paul's praying that the, the God who gives would give us the same mind with one another according to Christ and that Christ is our conductor. There's different shapes, sizes, personalities, backgrounds but if we're all in tune with christ if we're all following his lead in in our differences we make one beautiful sound and i will give it to like i don't know anything about the conductor i feel like they're the one person who's not playing an instrument but when you go to something like that and you see all of those instruments and they start playing it's like one beautiful sound like i don't hear the various instruments i just i just hear like the 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 movement of the sound. And apparently it's because they're all following that person. And if we, in our differences, are following Christ, we'll have that same sort of thing, which I'll get to. I don't want to let out of the bag. But but Paul's striving for unity in the midst of the differences. As a SEAL instructor, one of the things, there was always a moment with a, with a class early on where they transitioned from being, or I would say where we transitioned from being UDT SEAL to being the instructors. And about Wednesday or Thursday of Hell Week, I, I would, we would see it. And we would, inside, although we wouldn't admit it, we'd be kind of frustrated 
but we knew we'd done our job. Uh, up to that point, you could you can get into the mind of a boat crew, which is made up of six or seven guys that are trying to work together. And what you do is, it doesn't, they can all be working well, but you go up and you say, oh, Johnson's not carrying his weight. You guys need to deal with Johnson. He's the one holding you guys back. Johnson could be the best guy in the whole boat crew, but we don't care about that. And we walk away and then we can hear squabbling. It'll be pitch black at two in the morning. Like, Johnson's holding us back. Johnson, why don't you just quit? Johnson, we don't want you. And it's like, oh yeah, we got into their minds. And like, but then you get towards Hell Week as these guys, like they develop unity. We'll come by and say, hey, Johnson's holding you back. Oh, sorry, Johnson family. There was, I thought I was safe. With John. I used Johnson. There was a Johnson during the last service and I'm like, I thought I was safe. And then there's Johnson. This is nothing, not you guys. They're not, they're not the problem in the church. <laughs> they're not. And so, so all of a sudden you say, hey, Johnson, you're ruining it for everybody. Go hit the surf. But when this team is on fire on all cylinders and they, they cross the barrier, they say, Johnson's not going to the surf. We're all going to the surf zone. And the, instruct, the instructors turn into like little kids. Like, no, that's not what we said. You guys get just Johnson. But then we're like going, this is what we want. We, we need this people that can operate in teams that can't be broken. And Satan is working his way in the church, trying to divide apart the church over these secondary issues and preferences and convictions that aren't core issues. And so Paul is praying that the God who gives may he give you the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus, that we would follow our conductor so that another Heinecord, uh, Heineclause, I merged cord there, so that with one accord, you may with one voice glorify the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Say, guys, we need unity here because in our unity, as we are in sync with one another, then together in our differences, as we glorify God, there's nothing more beautiful. If you turn with me to John chapter 17, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And in John chapter 17, This is referred to as the high priestly prayer from John 13 through John 19. John records this evening in great detail. At some point, they at towards the end, Jesus sort of I imagine them standing. I don't know if they're sitting or standing, but I have them up and I and I sense Jesus praying over his guys one last time. He, he, he prays for those men that are there. And then in verse 20, he shifts. And look what he says. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, that these alone are the apostles that are in the room with Jesus. But then he shifts his prayer to us, to those that would believe following them. He says, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that you sent me, and I love them as you have loved me. So, so Jesus twice says it, that if there's unity within the body of Christ, that's going to have a, an impact on the outside world, namely that the outside world will come to know 
that Christ was sent. There are many people in our world that will never crack the Bible in your lives. The closest that they'll come to Jesus is you in their life and your example. And so Jesus understood this and Paul understands this. And this is his great drive for, for unity. Back to Romans chapter 15. And we come to verse 7. In verse 7 through, through 12, just the bigger picture, Paul is going to conclude in dealing with this problem of the tension between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers in the church. And, and he's pulling them to unity. And he says in verse 7, Therefore accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. So he sort of addresses this, the Jewish side of, of this to Israel. He said, Christ came to the circumcision, to the Jews, because in this it confirms all of the promises that are founded to Israel from Genesis through Malachi. That, that, that it confirms things. He doesn't give a whole lot of scriptural validation on this point. But then when he transfers over to the Gentiles, look what he says. He says, and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. And then he says, as it is written, and we're going to look at a number of of scriptures from the Old Testament that show that God has always included the Gentiles or had a plan of the Jews and Gentiles being together. He says, therefore, I will sing or therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles and I will sing to your name. Again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. And let all the peoples praise him. Again, Isaiah says, there shall come the root of Jesse. And he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. And so there's this picture of, look, the Jewish brothers, the Gentiles were always included in this plan. They were always going to be grafted in and worshiping together. A few years ago on Wednesday nights, we decided, we're like, hey, what book do we want to tackle? We're like, hey, let's do Isaiah. That's like a big, intimidating book. And at the very end of it, I was blown away. Um, I'm not going to read it at this time. But at the very end of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 66, verses 18 through 24, there's this picture of the gathering of, of all nations. They're going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to establish his new heavens and his new earth. He's going to gather all the peoples of the world. And as all of these peoples of the world, Gentiles with the Jews are coming, he says from amongst the Gentiles, I'm going to select some of them and I'm going to make them priests and Levites. And, and so there's this, this, this all peoples praising and worshiping God from all different backgrounds. This is one of the things that I love about our Thanksgiving celebration. It's not just because of the ham. Like, I love the ham. I love the food. But there's something to be sort of out of your comfort zone when the guy who's speaking is speaking in Spanish and in English, and you're sitting next to somebody who potentially doesn't even speak English, and you can't understand them. But that together, that we're worshiping together, it's this this picture of that Christ is the Christ of all peoples, all languages, all peoples. And there's a special beauty there when we come together and we worship him. And that's, I really do love our Thanksgiving celebration. And Paul ends with this doxology. 
the classic pastor. He, you would think that at verse 13, he could, he could end his message. He could just end right here. But he still has more to say. But for us, we're going to end with this. And after he says this, he says, now may the God of hope. I love this, that he describes God as the God of hope. It's not the God of frustration, discouragement, hopelessness. But he says, may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing. I want to pause on that word believing. He doesn't say the God of hope fill you in joy and peace, having believed, pointing back to when you were six years old and you responded to the altar call. While there is a time for, for trusting in Christ for salvation, I love that the scripture continually points that faith and believing is an ongoing expression. That we continue to believe so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Father, we do thank you and praise you, Lord, that you are a God of hope. Lord, we ask that you would help us, Lord, in our our differences of conviction, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would unify us around Christ, that we would be led by your spirit. Father, help us, Lord, to see our weaker brother. Lord, that we would be helpful, that we would be loving, that we would be kind, that we would honor you in our lives. Father, we thank you that through you there is hope, there's peace and joy available. We pray, Lord, that you would empower us by your spirit to live our lives for you. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.